following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We want to look at our scripture text for this morning, which comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. Luke chapter 17, verse 1 to 6. And it reads, And he said to his disciples, speaking of Jesus, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Let's pray. Father, every time we encounter your word, we are reminded of how alien it is to our way of thinking. How often, just at face value, the words that we find in the Bible often strike us as so odd or uncharacteristic of the way we tend to live our own lives. And so grant to us the humility to come before the authority of your word and to submit to it and be changed by it and to see your wisdom that is greater than our own. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, although the focus of the title for the message today is on forgiveness, um, I think there are actually three teachings going on here in this brief passage that are all tied together by this common theme of answering this question, How are we to live as a community of people who continue to struggle with sin? I mean, even if we say that we're Christians and that we are saved, that we believe in God, we know that that doesn't instantly change us overnight into being perfect people. But throughout our Christian lives, all of us struggle with sin. And the problem is that when we sin, that sin affects other people. And I think that's what Jesus is dealing with in this passage, is this social aspect of our sin. Our sin that hurts other people and the sins of others that end up abusing us. And the question is, in light of this brokenness of our world in which we're trying to live as a community and yet keep hurting each other over and over again, how do we actually do this? How do we be the people that God wants us to be. And so Jesus begins this teaching in verse 1, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Now, I want to make two observations based on these opening words of Jesus about temptation. The first is that because we live in a fallen world, none of us can escape temptation in our lives. In fact, every day, all of us are hit with this unrelenting barrage of temptations that come our way, uh, that are pulling us to make bad choices in our life. 
The Bible tells us that not even Jesus, when he was a man and walked this earth, could escape temptation. He faced it just like we did, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Temptation is a reality of life that all of us face. Really, you could say almost all the time. The second observation about temptation is this. That these temptations don't occur in a vacuum. In other words, what I'm saying is just about every temptation you face is linked to a bad choice that somebody else in your life has made. Okay? Um, You know, when you're driving down the highway and you're looking at that billboard with that very suggestive image that is sexually tempting you, Somebody made a choice to put that billboard up on that highway, didn't they? Um, when a coworker or a family member says a very unkind, hurtful thing to you, they are sparking anger out of you. You see, there's a context there. There's sins of others affecting us and tempting us into sin. Um, As many of you know, I spent five years living in Kenya as a missionary out in Africa. And uh, even while we were living out there, we uh, experienced uh, the troubles that Kenya was facing because of these constant attacks by this terrorist group based out of Somalia called Al-Shabaab. In their most famous attack that happened just about a year ago, Uh, armed gunmen raided this upscale mall in Nairobi called Westgate and ended up killing uh, 67 people and injuring about 130 more. It was a horrible tragedy. Uh, More recently, out in a city called Garissa, um, Al-Shabaab basically executed 147 Christian students who were studying at this university basically just separated the Muslims from the Christians, and then execution style just killed all the Christians. And so when you look at a situation like this with Al-Shabaab, I mean, there's no doubt, no one would argue that the Kenyan government has to respond aggressively to try to stop this violence. And so in the last year, Kenyan police forces have been targeting this neighborhood in Nairobi called Eastleigh, which is where predominantly the Somali refugees and other immigrants live in Kenya. And so night after night, day after day, raiding parties from the Kenyan police have been entering Eastleigh. And they've been basically breaking down doors randomly. And they've been um, interrogating and even beating up these Somali immigrants. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that I think for as long as anyone can remember, the Kenyan police have had a huge corruption problem. And so rather than these raids being an expression of a pure war on terror, what it often ends up being is a campaign of terror against often innocent immigrant Somalis. 
many of them who have valid immigration papers. And they're just trying to make a life for themselves in Kenya, trying to escape the violence of Somalia. And yet, their door is broken down by these corrupt police, and they're basically threatened with deportation or even worse, rape and things like that if, basically, they don't pay a bribe to the police who are at their door. Um, and so as a result of this crackdown in Eastleigh, um, a lot of young Somali men who actually had no desire to be at all involved with groups like Al-Shabaab and other terrorist groups have become so militarized, so angered by the injustice that they've been experiencing this last year that a lot of them have been joining Al-Shabaab and these terrorist groups. Now, when you look at that situation, all you can think is, what a mess, right? What a mess. It's like, in a situation like that, who do you blame? Do you blame the Muslim terrorists? Do you blame the police? Do you blame the Kenyan government? The truth is, there's no shortage of blame to go around here. And this just becomes a self-perpetuating system of dysfunction and sin. As one person harms another person, and that person retaliates in kind against somebody else. And what you end up with is just one big mess of sin. In this way, it's like we're all entangled in this web of sin. Our own sins, as well as the sins of others, trapping us in a world that is filled with this constant, unceasing temptation to do the wrong thing. Um, this is the world you and I live in, isn't it? And so that's why Jesus says, woe to those who are the source of the temptation that causes somebody else to fall into sin. Now, I want to say this. I think that our natural instinct is to reject, to refuse to accept this kind of responsibility that Jesus is laying on us. I think the truth is most of us sort of feel these sentiments of, hey, don't put that on me. Like, it's her life, not mine. It's her choices. Uh, he's a grown-up. He's responsible for his own choices. Don't blame me. You know, it's this idea that somehow I influenced you to do something wrong is something that I don't think, it really rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? Saying, listen, I didn't make him do that. I didn't force her to do that thing. Why are you blaming me? But what Jesus says is, yes, the Bible is actually very clear on this. Each of us is responsible ultimately for the choices that we make in life. It doesn't work to just say, he made me do it. Okay, when we stand before God as judge, we will have to be accountable to our own actions. And yet, we need to hear the grave warning of Jesus, which is that nevertheless, there will be a day of reckoning when God calls us to account for the way that our choices ended up maybe affecting the faith of somebody else. The things that we did that ended up affecting. What's interesting particularly is that in this passage, he talks about the little ones. And so a lot of scholars believe that this could either re refer to literal little children, which has, is saying a lot about our parenting, isn't it? 
saying that it's these vulnerable ones who are often defenseless and the ways that your actions can end up damaging them. Or other scholars think it can refer to spiritual children who are young or weak in the faith and saying these are particularly impressionable, vulnerable people who, on whom you can have an undue influence by the choices you make. And so watch yourself. Be on your guard about how your choices are affecting that person and their faith. In other words, there is a very real warning that your bad choices can pull someone away from God and steer them towards sin in their own lives. Philip Ryken describes it like this. What are some ways that we lead people astray? We do it any time our actions or attitudes set a bad spiritual example. We do it when our complaining spirit causes other people to be discontent. We do it by speaking evil words that unfairly influence someone else's opinion. We do it by carrying on an argument to the point where we provoke an angry response. We do it by enticing someone to commit sexual sin or join us for some juicy gossip. We do it by boasting of our accomplishments or acquisitions in a way that makes other people envious or boastful. So where Jesus starts is this thing, listen, just take heart and evaluate your life to see how am I possibly negatively impacting the faith of people in my life? And to what degree of responsibility do I hold to maybe even tempting someone towards sin by the way that I am treating them? by the choices that I am making in my life. Jesus goes on and he says this, If your brother sins, rebuke him. Uh, What Jesus is pointing out in no uncertain terms is that all of us as Christians have a responsibility to address the sin that we see in other people our brothers and sisters in Christ particularly. And just like with the first point, I think this point also, this teaching, meets a lot of resistance in our heart. Uh, We're actually commanded by Jesus to rebuke our brothers and sisters when we see them doing wrong. And I think for most, most of us, our reaction to that is, oh God, don't ask me to do that. You know, don't put that on me. Um, I just want everyone to be happy and to live in peace with everyone. Um, you know, when it comes to this issue of rebuke in the church, uh, I think there's two ways in which we tend to go wrong with this, two ways that we fail. Our first failure is we rebuke others with a spirit of condemnation rather than love. These are the Christians who are much quicker to see the fault in others than the fault in their own lives. As a result, they're always ready with a sharp word of judgment to put others in their place. The second failure is that we're too afraid to confront the sin that we see in others. These are the Christians that are willing to maintain peaceful relationships at any cost, meaning there is nothing you can convince me of that's going to make me confront that person. And so we turn a blind eye to the sins that are destroying our brothers and sisters in Christ. And according to the Bible, both of these attitudes 
are wrong. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 to 5 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, a lot of people interpret these words of Jesus to basically say something like this. Listen, we're all in the same boat. None of us are perfect. We're all flawed. We're all sinners. And so none of us should judge anybody else. But that misses the entire point of what Jesus says at the very end of this passage. The process does begin with a sobering self-assessment of my own sin, my own failure. But the purpose of that self-evaluation is so that we could be in the right condition of our own heart, so that, as Jesus says at the end here, is so that we can help our brother or sister who is struggling in their own sin and be in a place where we could help them with their own sin struggle. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Let the process start with self-examination. And check your own motives as to why it is you want to confront this person and say these things to this person. And after you have evaluated yourself, then you will be in a position to be able to approach that person with the right heart, with the right spirit, to help them in their own sin. This sentiment is echoed in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Brothers, if someone, is ca- uh, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You see, what Paul is saying is the spiritually mature, the ones that have that proper sobering humility before God because they realize they are sinners just like everyone else. That is the person that is in the right place, in the right, right condition of heart to restore somebody. It's the sign of maturity, spiritual maturity. A second sign that we see here, though, of the spiritual maturity is that in rebuking someone, the goal is always restoration. As Paul says here, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Now, I want to say this. I think a lot of us assume that that's our intention. We give ourselves far too much credit. Well, of course I want to help that person, and that's why I'm going to rebuke them. But honestly, I think the truth is, by far, we, have, we are often driven by more ulterior motives, more baser motives of, you know, the truth is, I just want to give that person a piece of my mind. The, per, the, the, the truth is, that person hurt me, and I want to attack back and show them how much they hurt me. Um, you see, your message may be spot on when you want to rebuke someone, but 
you may not be the right messenger for that message if your heart is immature and the attitude with which you enter that rebuke is not right before God. Um, you need to ask yourself, why do I feel the need to say something to this person? Am I really speaking out of a place of love? That word, restore gently, in the Greek is an interesting one. It's actually a medical term that is used to describe a surgeon who resets a broken bone. It's, that's the actual word that Paul uses. And so the picture is, you see someone walking with this gruesome bone jutting out of their skin, and you're like, somebody's got to help that guy. Like, you can't, it would be criminal to just let this guy go on unhelped. You have to help them, but who's going to help this person? And how are you going to help them? And what Paul is saying, it has to be someone with that heart of restoration. Someone that can act out of love, and out of that love, gently, like the tender hands of a surgeon, resets that broken bone so that it will heal. That is the picture of rebuke that Jesus is giving us. In Scripture, John Stott writes, If we walk by the Spirit, we would love one another more. And if we love one another more, then we would bear one another's burdens. And if we bore one another's burdens, we would not shrink from seeking to restore a brother who has fallen into sin. Further, if we obeyed this apostolic instruction as we should, much unkind gossip would be avoided, more serious backsliding prevented, the good of the church advanced, and the name of Christ glorified. As Stodd points out in this quote, the courage to rebuke those that we find in sin is by God's design, part of the way he created church to work so that we help one another out when we are too blind to see our own sin and the destruction that it is causing in our life. We need a more mature, older brother or sister in Christ who can come alongside that person and restore them gently with a heart of love. To say, I love you too much to watch you crash and burn like this. And I have to say something to you about what's happening in your life. This is a command of Christ for the body of Christ. Jesus concludes his teaching with this final command to forgive in verses 3 to 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You see what Jesus is saying is, what do you do when it's no longer sin in general that you just happen to observe as a third party? What do you do when it's a specific sin that ends up actually hurting you? How do you deal with that? And Jesus' answer is simple. You forgive. Not just once or twice. You forgive, and you forgive, and you forgive, and then when it seems like you can't forgive anymore, you forgive again. That number seven, a lot of people think, it's not, it's not literal. All the commentators are in agreement. It's, it's not saying, just be patient because the eighth time is coming when you don't have to forgive anymore, and you can really rip into them, you know? That's not what Jesus is saying. That idea of seven times is basically symbolically saying it's eternally or endlessly, unceasingly, okay? Um, I don't know about you, but of all the teachings in this brief passage, I think this is the hardest one. 
by far. Um, It raises so many problematic issues if you really think about it. Um, What about justice? You know, what about justice? Um, How will people be held accountable for their actions if we offer them endless forgiveness when they do wrong against us? Wouldn't this constant forgiveness just encourage bad behavior? I mean, if I allow others to walk all over me like a doormat, aren't I just becoming an enabler? These are legitimate concerns. They are. And these issues, I believe, are addressed elsewhere in Scripture about some practical things that may need to happen when someone repeatedly is falling into sin. But Jesus' main interest in this teaching is not about pragmatically how we manage the situation as much as he's just trying to address the disciples' heart to say, how are you at a heart level going to deal with this when people hurt you again and again and again? And what Jesus is saying is the response that you have to come to in your own heart is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, there's an implication to this idea of forgiving someone over and over again that I suspect many of you might not have caught right away. I think when a lot of us think about forgiving someone, we think of it sort of like somebody has hurt us, And now I am given the position of judge over that person and I can declare them guilty and really let them feel how much they've hurt me or I can pronounce them innocent like a legal verdict and say, I forgive you. It's like a pardon that we offer to someone, okay? Now, if it's only understood at that level, I think for some of us we can work up the strength to forgive someone and say, fine, all right? I forgive you. It's like I'm the judge over you. I say, I forgive you. Go free. I don't care. Whatever. But here's the truth. Is if that pain that they caused us is deep enough, or if the offense is repeated often enough, even if at some legal level we may be willing to say, I forgive you, I think at a relational level, in all likelihood, we're going to cut that person off from our life, aren't we? We're going to basically say, I don't hold this over your head. I forgive you. But at the same time, I don't want anything to do with you. Why don't you go that way and I'll go this way and we'll just leave each other alone and just stay out of my life. I think in all honesty, that's the way forgiveness functions in a lot of our relationships. And I'm going to argue that that's not the forgiveness that Jesus teaches in Scripture. Think of it this way. The only way that a person is going to be able to hurt you the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the twentieth, the thirtieth time is what? If I remain in relationship with that person, isn't it? And I think that's what Jesus is ultimately saying. Is true forgiveness as he sees it is not about just telling somebody, I forgive you, now go away from me. True forgiveness is the willingness to re-enter that relationship knowing very well that that person may hurt you again. And let's be honest here. That's not easy for any of us to do, is it? There's something so deep inside us that resists an action that makes us that vulnerable. 
that at risk. The only way we would ever need to repeatedly forgive someone is if we continue in relationship with that person. Miroslav Volv says it like this. Forgiveness removes the obstacle to embrace, but is not yet the embrace of the enemy. For even with forgiveness granted, each of us could still go our own way. The offended party could say, I don't hold a transgression against you anymore, but I prefer that our ways part. Or the offender could say, I receive your forgiveness, but I don't want to have anything to do with you in the future. Reconciliation will take place only when former enemies have moved toward each other and embraced each other as belonging to the same communion of love. That's true forgiveness from the Christian perspective. Is you're still my brother. You're still my sister. And what God is calling us to do is to learn how to still love each other despite the many ways that we hurt each other over and over again. In truth, that's the only way a marriage survives, isn't it? Because God knows spouses do that to each other all the time. And the easiest thing to do is either go your separate way or wall your heart off to try to protect yourself. But to constantly let yourself be vulnerable to that person's pain is often more than can be asked of us. On hearing this radical teaching from Jesus, especially on forgiveness, the disciples had this rare uncharacteristic moment in which they interrupt him and they, they it basically, they shout out, increase our faith. Increase our faith. What I find interesting is that they didn't ask for more love. They didn't ask for more tolerance in order to obey these difficult teachings of Jesus. They asked for more faith. More faith to be able to forgive like this. I want you to think back to what we've, I've been talking about in this whole message, especially out of these three teachings. When it comes to not tempting others to sin, I think the natural instinct, as I've outlined, is this. I'm not my brother's keeper. Don't try to blame me for your problems. You know, Don't put that on me. But Jesus' command is, I take responsibility for the ways in which I may tempt you into sin. When it comes to rebuking those who are in sin, the natural instinct is to say, I don't want to get involved with your issues. Leave me out of this. Okay? Just don't drag me into your garbage. Whereas Jesus' command is, I love you too much to keep silent about this sin that is hurting you. And when it comes to forgiving those who have sinned against us, our natural instinct is to say, I forgive you, but I'm not going to let you ever hurt me again. I'm going to protect myself from you. I want you to keep away. Whereas what Christ is saying is, I forgive you and I'm committed to our relationship, no matter the cost. Now, if you look at this left-hand column, I would argue that the common uniting theme of these sentiments of our natural instincts is that they all describe a heart of self-preservation. A heart of self-preservation. That's what's characterized by these statements. 
I'm going to do whatever I need to do to protect myself. I refuse to take any responsibility for any way that you might be influenced by my actions. I'm not going to risk having you get mad at me by calling you out on your sin. I'm going to stay away from you so that you can't hurt me anymore. These are all self-protecting stances, aren't they? But when we look at the right-hand column of what Jesus is asking of us, we can say that the uniting thing of those actions is faith and trust in God. You see, what Jesus is saying is to obey these commands of what I'm asking you is going to put your life out on a limb. You are going to make yourself vulnerable. And the only way that you can do that is if you have absolute trust that God is the one that is in control, that ultimately he is the one that is the judge. I want to say this. I think one of the reasons why we often struggle to forgive people is because it's about control and it's about power, isn't it, often? It's because as long as I hold on to that pain, as long as I refuse to forgive you, it gives me a sense of power over you. We both know that you wronged me, and as long as I hold a grudge, I hold the power in the relationship. It's also, I think, often a way for us to say, I matter. My pain matters. And the truth is, if I just forgive you, then I lose all of that. It's like I lose my rights. I lose my claim to justice. And I get forgotten in this mess. And it's like you get, you're the one that gets all the mercy if I forgive you against what you have done to me. And so the truth is, often we don't forgive because it enables to feel like we have some semblance of control over the situation and say that my pain will not be forgotten. It will not be minimized until I have my day of justice because of this wrong done to me. So when we forgive somebody, it is one of the greatest acts of mercy and grace that we can offer in life because it says, I surrender that pain. I surrender my right to be getting my day in court. I surrender that all out of my concern for you and your welfare, your well-being. And ultimately, the only reason why I can do that is because I believe there's a God in heaven that watches over me and who ultimately will be your judge and my judge and who holds justice in his hand. That's the sentiment of Psalm chapter 17, verse 1 to 2. Hear, O Lord, my righteous plea. Listen to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. May my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. It's saying, I will not be your judge and jury. I will not exact justice on my own terms. I leave that to God. I leave that to God. What he asked me to do as my part as his disciple is to forgive, to forgive and forgive and forgive again, no matter how much you hurt me. My posture is always one of forgiveness. And I think the truth is we can only give that kind of forgiveness when we realize that that is how God forgives us, isn't it? Because the truth is this is exactly what you have done against God all your life. Despite all of your promises to do better, live better, to not keep sinning against God, the truth is 
we break those promises all the time. And what do we do? We have to come back to him over and over again and say, I repent. Forgive me. And what does God do? If anybody had a justified right to break off a relationship because of repeated sin, it is God. And yet in his mercy, he does not treat us this way. As it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a promise that he never takes away. Every time, no matter how often it is, you come seeking my forgiveness, that forgiveness is available to you. And so because we receive such a great mercy, we can offer this mercy to the people in our life who hurt us again and again. Let me just close with this quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who says, Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself becomes destroyers of that Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may ever be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our community is in Jesus Christ alone, the more calmly we will learn to think about our community and pray and hope for it. Now, this, this, is, this may be a little hard to understand what Bonhoeffer is saying, but what he's saying is, is this. The church is not an idea. It's not a concept. It's a reality of human beings just like you and I sitting in this room this day. And the truth is, in the reality of the church, not the ideal of church, it's messy, it's ugly. And the truth is, we hurt each other all the time. And the danger is, you can stand there and look at the church and say, you see, this is why I hate the church. And why can't we be like this? And you can go on and on and say, these are all the things I think is wrong with this church. And you become a critic of the church like that, when in truth, the church is the people of God gathered by God in all of its messiness and sin. And the danger is this, is over my decades of pastoral ministry, I've met a lot of Christians like that who settle into a church with this ideal in mind of what the perfect church is. And when that local church doesn't meet up to that reality... It's this disillusionment season of saying, you see, these people are all phony. They're all living phony lives, and this is not the church of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to move and find a better church. And then you go and look for that better church. You go, I found it. I'm so glad I left that church, and I'm at this church now. And then you stay here, and you know, maybe one day ICC will be that church. And you find yourself at our doorstep and go, oh, these people are so great. I love the worship. And, you know, messages, they're okay. And, you know, like it's, you know, generally I find the service to be acceptable. I guarantee you it will not be long before you can strip away all of that and start seeing our wrinkles and flaws and warts. And it won't be long before you say, what's wrong with these people? You see, they're just like the other group I left. And I have to go and find another group. Find the real church of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I'm not saying that there aren't ideals that we have to aspire to and try to live up to. 
But when those ideals become the very tools we use to try to tear down the church of Jesus Christ, then we become an enemy of God, not his friend. And I think that it has to be a soul-searching each one of us does. When we get into the stance of self-righteous judgmentalism toward the body of Christ and say, what's wrong with these people? I think what Christ is painting a picture of in this passage is radically different. He's saying the truth is this. You have a negative impact on other people by the choices you've made far more than you are willing to own up to. And there are people whose sin is right in front of you, and you see them hurting because of it. And sometimes their sin is affecting you. It actually is abusing you. Saying, how are we going to live in a world like this? How are we going to live in a church like this? And Jesus says, without faith, it's impossible. But when you can trust that I am in this community, when you can trust that I am ultimately your vindicator, your judge, when you can ultimately believe that I am the one in control, then you're suddenly freed to love people and care for them, gently restore them, watch your life so that you don't stumble them, and then even forgive those who hurt you. And in this way, we are building the true church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. As we uh, get ready to head off to the picnic, um, I just, and close off our service here, just want to invite you for a few moments of personal reflection. And uh, I, I just want you to do maybe a little reflecting on what your journey has been in your experience of church. Because I'm guessing that if you've experienced church at all, you've probably gone through some season of disillusionment and maybe even disgust as you kind of look at the people that you're worshiping with. And it's very easy to start getting very hypercritical and going like, you know, I don't know what's wrong with these people. And I don't know what's going on here, you know. And um, I think Jesus is bringing real sobering honesty and reality to the experience of a community of his disciples and saying, you know, um, you're going to constantly have this pull toward treating people in a way that's very self-protecting. That when you see all the dysfunction, all the brokenness, all the sin out there, your natural inclination is to take a posture toward people that protects yourself. That says, I'm not entering into that garbage. No way. Don't ask me to get involved with that. Or it could even be, you know what? I can't handle this anymore. Like, you're never going to, I'm never going to let you hurt me again. I, I just, I forgive you, brother, whatever that means. I forgive you, but just stay away from me. Could you just leave me alone? And these are all very human responses to the brokenness of life. But what Christ is asking of his disciples is a supernatural response that can only come by supernatural faith through the empowerment of his spirit that says that every fiber of my being is pressing me to act this way, but by faith I choose to do this. And so, can I just invite you to maybe just pray for a couple minutes and just think about what your attitude toward others has been, and especially in light of this context of the way people might have hurt you or even the way you might have hurt others. And whether you are the perpetrator or the victim, I think it doesn't matter. In all situations, God is simply saying, trust in me, surrender all of that to me,
and I can show you a better way. So we just just take a couple minutes to pray for that faith that the disciples cried out for. Say, increase my faith to be able to treat people in this way and live in community with others in this way that would truly honor you. And as you pray, let our worship team will come and just close us in a a couple songs of response. Let's pray.